We know that faith is important. We also know that there are challenges every day to our faith. Challenges to our faith come from many aspects of life. They come from maybe health issues that we're confronted with, that we have to deal with that just, well, are a burden. Maybe there's job challenges, the lack of one or working with someone who is not quite so easy to work with or maybe having a job that really doesn't cover all that we need to cover. There's the issues of life that we must deal with each and every day. Family issues. Issues with our friends that come up. And then ultimately death. We know that death is a reality. Solomon said there's a time to be born and a time to die. When we live amongst all these challenges, we have so much going on that challenges us and our faith. Now, I've mentioned a few of those challenges, but we have others. It's getting tough to live out there with rampant inflation. Cost of everything is going higher and higher. As we know, we have war in the Ukraine. And I doubt that that's the only hot spot that's in the world today. We know that our brothers in Uganda have told us about the civil war in the Congo. We know that man's solution sometimes to, conf- to issues is through armed conflict. That really isn't going to solve a whole lot. We can solve a lot more, probably, at a lot less costly manner through dialogue. But in our political situation, it just seems to be filled with rancor. Everybody wants to grab the microphone from some media person and just shout how unjust everyone is. Without even thinking about what they're saying. There is life. We don't have to deal with war here in the United States as they do in the Ukraine or the Congo. We don't have to deal with some of our political leaders taking our lives. In the 1500s, I forget exactly when, 1550s, thereabouts, there was a Protestant reformer in England by the name of Hugh Latimer. He was known as being a great preacher of his day and he had opportunities, many opportunities to preach. On one occasion, he was going to get to preach before King Henry VIII of England. What would you say? How would you feel if you were asked to say something publicly in front of a political leader? President Biden, former President Trump. He was going to do it with King Henry VIII. He thought about a great responsibility to bring a message before the king. What will the king think? What will the king react? He also thought about the message that God laid on his heart was not a message that the king was going to want to hear. That's probably an understatement. He contemplated this and he heard a voice. The voice was, Latimer, remember, you are preaching to the king King Henry VIII, who, if he wills, can take away your life. 
sobering thought, right? Because that's what a king could do in those days. And then as he began to dwell on that, to think about that, he started hearing another voice. Latimer, remember, you are preaching before the king of kings. Do not displease him. Talk about a dichotomy. You're preaching before a king who could take your life. But not only that, you're preaching before the king of kings. Because God's going to know every word that you say. He's going to hear every word that you say. He was torn between motives. Would he preach what the king wanted to hear? Or would he preach what God would want him to say? Latimer chose the latter. He chose what God would have him to preach. Ultimately, the king didn't like it. King Henry VIII did what kings do, especially King Henry VIII, and he had him executed. In Jesus' conflict in John chapter 8, in verse 32, he was telling the Jews there on that day, they would listen to him. He said, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Later on, he would say, if I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak of truth, if I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? I think it's safe to say that the Jews, the religious leaders and those who were following them didn't believe what he had to say because it didn't fit what they wanted it to be. So they didn't like it. As we come and stand before God, we know that God wants us to have strong faith. Faith is absolutely what is needed. In fact, the writer of the Hebrew letter would say in chapter 11 and verse 6, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, and I apologize, I have it pasted in my notes, so I'll get there a whole lot faster than you. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You think about that. The things that we do, we have to do so by faith. Because God will reward those who seek him in faith. Who do things out of him in faith. Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4 Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. It's not just in deciding what I'm going to say before the king of a nation. It's what am I going to say and how am I going to live before the king of kings? Something that Latimer had to deal with. In the gospel of Mark. A father brings before Jesus his son who is demon-possessed. He brought it to his disciples, but they couldn't cast it out. And so that's what he told them in Mark chapter 9, verse 23 and 24. Jesus, I'm certain, patiently listened to him, wondering perhaps maybe where his faith was. And maybe because of the way he responded to Jesus, says... If you can do this, please do so. 
Jesus just responded to him, if you can, like a big exclamation point with a question mark attached to it, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. Sometimes the struggles that we face in life may be because of a lack of faith. We have to have a strong personal faith in God. Faith in the person of God. The Bible teaches us in Genesis that God created man in his own image. God created us that he might have relationship with us. In Romans chapter 1, Paul said as he was indicting the world under sin, and he quoted what Habakkuk said, the righteous shall live by faith. He said, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, chapter 1 of Romans, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now, this is only part of God's revelation. It didn't reveal his personal nature to them. It just revealed there is somebody bigger on the block than you. I had a friend, preacher, named Carl Farrell. That's basically what he taught his sons. The youngest would go out and find some young kid. I guess it was kind of a bully. Would beat him up. And if he couldn't, then one of the brothers would come. The next youngest and the next. And finally it was Carl's place. And if Carl couldn't do it, then the two dads would mix it up. I can't imagine living that way. It's kind of normal for Carl in his life. You know, there are things that we experience in life. And sometimes a reputation will precede a person. You don't want to mess around with them. And maybe that's why they wanted it to go down that way. So that they know you don't mess around with our family. God's not that way. Forgive me for a moment. My clipboard... This won't allow me to do this, so I'm going to throw it over here. God revealed himself. He says, look at the world. Could any of you create any of this? Have any of you created any of this? And the obvious answer is no, but that doesn't reveal God per se. Reveal something out there greater than me. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, long ago God spoke to the fathers, and then through the prophets, and now through his son. God revealed himself in a very personal way to people. And so Hosea would say, oh God, God laments the waywardness of Israel, saying, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart is turned over within me. All my compassions are kindled. I want this relationship with you. The psalmist in chapter 42 and verse 1 talks about 
how he panted as a deer for God as a deer pants for the water. Something that you need for life. And the psalmist said, my soul pants for you, O God. God wants us to have that kind of a longing for him. God feels sadness when we perhaps ignore him, refuse him, disobey him. We see that when Jesus wept for the city of Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 and following. He said, Jerusalem, Matthew 23, verse 30, 23, verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. That's sad. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're not willing to follow me. You're not willing to listen to me. During times of crisis that shake our faith, we must believe that God is there and that he cares for us and he wants to bless us. So we have to have faith in the person of God. We have to have faith in God. We also have to have faith in his power. Sometimes when we're going through things, we just can't seem to make it right. And sometimes we have maybe a lack of faith in God. It's easy to say in Genesis, you know, chapter one, that God created the heavens and the universe. And we go through the creation story and we see all of the creation is there. God speaking the world into existence. And in Colossians chapter one, verse 15, it is where it says that Jesus was there with God, was creating everything and he holds it together. Again, I've read in Romans chapter 1 that God made it evident to people. But God delivered his people showing that he wanted to have a relationship with him. He called, well, he delivered people first through Noah. Then he called Abraham. There was a famine in the land and Joseph, well, he ends up in Egypt. But God takes him from a slave in a dungeon and elevates him to the right hand of Pharaoh. God's power. Then there arose a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. He forgot all of the stories. He wouldn't. He was just too busy to go down to the library and read of all of the histories of Egypt. And how Joseph was indeed a blessing. He looks at the people and says, this group of people is massive. I don't want to lose my... Kingdom. God delivers Egypt, Israel from Egypt through the plagues. The final one, he delivers them from Pharaoh at the Red Sea. And Pharaoh and the enemies of Israel are crushed. We read the stories of Jericho falling, Israel going into the promised land. We read the, the stories of the lives of David and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In those stories, God is saying, I'm a God who is near and not a God who is far off. He's saying that I see him. Oops. And even though that's not there in my notes, it is now. Wrong page. That's true, though. God is near. 
He saw what was going on with Daniel. That's why he revealed to him Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. We see that Jesus was raised from the tomb. We know it's an event of history. Because nothing else explains it. And in Hebrews chapter 7, the Bible tells us in verse 25, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, that God is able to save to the uttermost. Nothing is too far from God or so lost from God that he cannot save us. Although the one who fails to repent before him, not a whole lot God can do. Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, a verse that sometimes we need to think about and what it means and its implications, where he says, Now to him who is able to to do beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. We have great power. That power is we can talk to God in prayer. And we can ask him anything that's on our heart. He's going to say yes. He's going to say no. He may be saying maybe. Just wait. He may want to know that it's really, really important that this happens so that you'll ask. He wants to know, are you willing to give what it takes? But really, the question now must be, how has God delivered you? You see, we usually see God's deliverance in hindsight. In fact, that's the only way we're going to see it. When you've been brought through a tough spot, how did God do it? Maybe in hindsight you see him preparing the way. Maybe it was through reading something in Scripture that you saw, and now it's in your mind. Maybe it's how things just worked out prior to that event. And you say, oh, this is God's deliverance. He was preparing me, and I didn't even know it. I can really say that in one sense, because when Heather, our firstborn, was a baby, I read an obscure article in Parents Magazine about sudden infant death syndrome. And I'm thinking how terrible that is. That had to be for a mother to walk in, babies in the crib, not breathing. She died sometime during the night. Well, Heather grew up and didn't think a thing about it until Jeremy, who was five months and three days old, and I get a phone call elk hunting in Colorado, and he died of sudden infant death syndrome. And I kid you not, I remembered the article. I could almost envision the article. I couldn't find the magazine when I got home, but I remembered it totally. Nothing that we could have done. Took a long time coming off that mountain because you can only go so fast on mountainous roads with curves in them, but we made it down. But that article helped. And it was sometime later that I was able to see the hand of God. Why? Well, we were in Colorado. Why? What's that mean? Denver, Colorado, National Children's Hospital there at Denver, National Sud Center. We had more information about sudden infant death syndrome than we knew what to do with almost. Didn't answer any questions. It just told us that we weren't alone. Explained to us that there was nothing that we could do. I didn't know that before we went that day. But we found it. 
God has delivered each and every one of us. And I don't know how he's delivered you, but he will deliver you from whatever you're going through. You just have to have faith. And so we also have faith in the providence of God. What is providence? Well, there's a general aspect of God's providence, the widespread care and supervision which God exercises over his created universe, designated as his general providence, which he embraces alike the evil and the good. God causes his rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, the sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. Sometimes when you need it most, it's there. We don't necessarily see things because God is just behind the scenes taking care of us, giving us what we need day by day, and we just don't think about it. It's almost like we just expect it to happen. But then there's those special times. A special particular providence which he exercises over in over and in behalf of the good of those whose wills are in harmony with his divine will. You're going through an issue and you're following God day by day and something just, just falls right into place. It's a God thing. The age of doing things of God working miraculously amongst us are over. Miracles were performed without the use of natural means over and above God's prescribed natural laws. Seven miracles in the Gospel of John illustrating Jesus being the Son of God, being divine. Those were recorded for us, as John would say, that we might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. They've been confirmed. The apostolic testimony has been confirmed. We don't need those miracles today. We may want them. It'd be nice to have them. And it does not mean that because they've ceased that God's power has ceased. God is still God and can do whatever he wants. He may not do it in such a way as he did then, but he may still bring it about through his special providence in your life. You see, God's providence continues just as it has from the beginning. It was Joseph who told his brothers in chapter 45 and verse 6, they sold him into slavery. And don't you wonder, have you, know, have you ever thought, what were they thinking? Oh, they were angry with Joseph for his dreams. And so they throw him into a pit and they, they were going to kill him. One of his brothers at night was going to sneak out and get him out and save his life. And he wasn't able to do that because they see this band of Midianite traders. And, oh, well, why kill him? Let's make some money off of him. And they sell him into slavery. Potiphar buys him. Potiphar's wife accuses him falsely. He's thrown into prison. He interprets two dreams for a baker and a cupbearer. They come to pass. He tells them, said, now, you remember me when this, these things happen. <laughs> cupbearer forgot. Joseph's still in prison. Joseph didn't give up. He still continued on living. Faithfully to God. Till he's till Pharaoh has a dream and he interprets that dream for Pharaoh and he's given position of power second only to Pharaoh in all of Egypt. There's a famine in the land and his brothers come in there to him. And the second time, the second trip down there in Genesis chapter 45 and verse 6. Now that he's revealed himself, they are, uh-oh. Joseph was going to remember what he did, we did to him. This isn't going to be good, fellas. I can just hear the back talk, you know. 
because that would be human nature. He says, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. This was all done by God's doing. You guys had, yeah, he just used you. Because without you, you could, this wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have come here. God did it. Esther's an interesting book in the fact that God's not mentioned in the book of Esther. But God's hand is seen. An edict is going to have to kill all of the Jews. Esther has been elevated to the king's, to the king's wife because Queen Vashti, well, she disregarded the king. And Mordecai just tells her in chapter 4 and verse 13, Esther 4, verse 13 and 14, his reply to Esther was, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Says Esther, you don't know why you're here, why you're the wife of the king. And there are many stories like that in the Bible. You and I. Maybe we need to ask ourselves, why did I have this interaction today with this person? Maybe it's a God thing. And maybe when you think it's a God thing, you'll treat that person a little kinder, a little more respectful, because you'll be thinking they're also created in the image of God. And so you'll want to touch them with the gospel of God. We have God has given us various promises to Abraham, to Moses. He's given promises to us. He's promised to save us. He's promised a dwelling place. John 14. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many rooms. He's promised to always be there with us. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, he said to the church in Ephesus, I think it is, be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. That's the crown of the victor, the winner of the race. In Acts chapter 22, verse 16, Paul recounting his salvation experience, if you will. He said, Ananias told me, he says, Paraphrasing a little bit. Paul, what are you waiting for? Quit just thinking about it. Just do it. He said, why tarryest thou? Arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. God has promised to save us, to wash away our sins, and to always be with us. Why? So that we will be with him and live faithfully to him. A 90-year-old faithful Christian was asked one time how he did so much for Christ. And he said, I never lost the wonder of it all. Sometimes the day in, day out gets to be a rut. You know what a rut is? It's a grave with the ends kicked out. What more could it be? When you lose the wonder of what God is all about and what he's doing, life becomes a rut. So we need to have faith that God is and he wants a relationship with us. We have to have faith that he is powerful. We have to have faith 
in his providence. That he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. We need to, as that man with the demon-possessed boy said, help my unbelief. The disciples on one occasion said, increase our faith. We have to have that same desire to have our faith grow day by day. And it happens as we continue to read and study the Word of God. As we continue to have fellowship with one another. As we continue to see the wonder in how God is working among us. As we work with Him. The Song of Invitation is standing on the promises of God. God's promises are there for us. We don't invoke them as some religious talisman, but we recognize that God has made promises to his people. I don't know where you are and God are today in your relationship, but you do, and God does. And he wants you to have a strong, vibrant, living, growing, increasing faith every day. So stand on his promises. And if you need, come to Jesus standing on his promises while we stand and sing.